Uh, friends, obviously I'm a visitor and uh, feel a little bit of an intruder into this, but uh, it's been a wonderful intrusion and I'm so thankful for your friendship and fellowship and uh, I don't need to tell you that uh, dealing with Jack from a distance who I didn't know has been an absolute pleasure and um, I've been greatly looked after more than I could imagine. So thank you and thanks to the musicians who've done a great job leading us in our songs time after time. That's been a very edifying way to begin. Let's um, pray once more for God's gracious help. Uh, Father, we do acknowledge that all these good things are traceable to you. And we thank you too that you've given to us your word. We pray that it would be our rule and guide as we think together, that your Holy Spirit would graciously help us to receive uh, beyond our own inclination to reject, we pray that you would overrule to help us receive your word. And we pray that as we live our lives, you would give to us in our hearts a real concern for your honour, a concern for the lost, which you have yourself, and wisdom, strength, perseverance, patience, faithfulness in your service. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give to us. What we are not, please make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You people familiar with uh, Dale Ralph Davis? Yeah. Lovely uh, writer. Too many stories, but uh, fantastic stuff. And uh, this morning I'm reading this little book of his on uh, the exposition of Genesis, the life of Abraham. And uh, he finishes with this. Um, little mention of a man called Douglas Brown who described revival once and said revival is not going down the street with a big drum it's going back to Calvary with a big sob it's quite a punchy comment isn't it it's not going down the street with a big drum it's sometimes going back to Calvary with a big sob well let's turn to uh, 1 Timothy 5 and um, we've seen so far in chapters 1 to 4 the message in chapter 1, the gatherings in chapter 2, the leadership in chapter 3 and a call to godliness in chapter 4 and now we come to 5 and 6 and you may think that this is going to be a disappointing section uh, when there's such a lot about widows and money and one commentator Gordon Fee says why the inordinate length in a pastoral letter given to the care of widows. But uh, I want you to know that the widows in chapter 5 and the money in chapter 6 are the presenting issues and that what is behind it is the real issue. And the real issue, please hear this if you hear nothing else from the last talk, is that God is interested in the big and eternal things of which the widows and the money are the presenting issues. The real issues are the big and eternal things. That's what we're going to see in our last talk today. So when you come to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy and you think this is mostly about widows, and then you come to chapter 6 and you think this is mostly about money, look carefully and you'll see that these are actually the front of something behind, which is more significant. It's like, do you remember in the 80s, those 3D pictures that were just a complete blur and you had to stand there going weird with your eyes, waiting for some 3D picture and some people never got it. They just stood there and said, this is ridiculous. There is nothing there. 
And then there's others who, for some reason, were able to see this amazing 3D picture emerge. And that's how it is with these chapters. So let's begin with chapter 5. I'm just going to read two verses, 1 to 2. He says, don't rebuke an older man. Remember, he's been talking in chapter 4 about the younger pastor setting an example. He says, now don't rebuke an older man harshly. But exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. This is a little reminder to us about church relationships. And coming into this fellowship, I can see that with the leadership which has been exercised and the trickle-down effect, the fellowship is good. And that's the great privilege that uh, we have is to exercise by the grace of God some good leadership which trickles down into relationships. So the church really is like a family. Once again, you see the Apostle Paul is comparing the human family with the church family. And if you're a young pastor and you do have to uh, rebuke an older man or perhaps correct him, uh, perhaps um, change his thinking, it's good, says the Apostle Paul, to do that like a good son would to a father. The older man in the church, as you know from the little letter of Titus, is never to be treated as expendable or, or a fool, but to be treated as an essential. And the older man in the church, like the grandfather in a family, is often such a blessing to the church. To see a man who's just traveled with Christ for so many decades. And so when you're dealing with the older difficult man, treat him, says Paul, as a father. And then the, the, younger man, chapter, the younger man, chapter 5, verse 1, is to be treated as a brother, somebody, who, again, who's to be valued, cared for, nurtured. Many young men in churches, as you know, have problems with their real fathers, and sometimes a pastor will come and exercise some love and grace and wisdom, and the grace of God will heal much of the heart of that young man if they're dealt with carefully. The older woman, chapter 5, verse 2, treat them as your mother, which doesn't mean take them your washing and your ironing, but be affectionate towards them, be appreciative towards them. Again, the older woman who's perhaps feeling finished in every way and not as attractive as she used to be, uh, is to be treated as absolutely essential for the life of the church, honourable, somebody who's still on holy business and uh, can be um, helped by a pastor or by Christian people to take her role in the church really joyfully. And the younger woman, chapter 5, verse 2, is to be treated, says Paul, as a sister with all purity, an absolutely crucial issue. You only need the pastor to fall into the trap of being flirty or dirty, and the whole thing can become an absolute bushfire in the church. One foolish word, one foolish deed can undo a ministry. We need to be so careful. So you see, in two verses, just two verses, he lifts young Timothy's mind up to see the members of the church in a constructive way. And uh, this is not wasted in the mission of God because people are looking for signs of fellowship and life. How are we going to do this? Chapter 1, verse 14, the grace of God has been poured out with all faith and love. So that's how we're to do it. 
Now, chapter 5, 3 to 16, again, begins with the word honour, or certainly it begins with the word honour, give proper recognition, literally honour. It's the little word uh, timah, which comes up three times in the letter, once to do with the widows, once to do with the elders, and then once for the servant with the master. And I'm not even going to read this long section because um, uh, much as I would like to, we might read it at the end, but I want to get into it by saying that in case you think this is a section on widows, which is to be literally adopted in your church, that would be a mistake. You're not meant to, for example, start a list and wait till women are 60 to be put on the list. That would be to literalize the principles which are here. And I want to say again, this is an illustration of what to do in a pastoral crisis. So the widows are the presenting issue. The response, the priority in the midst of the crisis is the real issue. And it's a piece of genius from God through the Apostle Paul. I'm going to show you the quick steps and then we'll read the passage. Uh, Paul says, this is step one to one, uh, step number one. Okay, you've got women in your church. You have women in your church. Yes, you do. Chapter five, the, verse three. Some of them are widows with a good family to support them. Great. Some of them are widows with no family to support them. Therefore, the church will be the family to support them. Some of these widows are godly and they may not even ask for help. And some of them are ungodly and will ask for help when they don't need it. So how's the church going to be shrewd in this context? The church needs to work out who to support and who not to support, who is real and who is not. When I was um, in the western suburbs of Sydney, we had a girl come to the church and she was very shabbily dressed and she had one little girl who was also looked as though she'd never been washed. And um, she had a desperate situation. She was in a housing commission house. She seemed to have no money. And we gathered a whole lot of people to support her and we mowed her lawns and we brought her meals and all that sort of thing, the sort of thing that you do. Uh, One day I got a call from the um, Blacktown Council to come to the council. And I went to the council and sitting around the room were literally 20 pastors who were all at the service of this girl. They were all washing windows, cleaning floors, buying groceries, providing money. And we were basically, I say this as kindly as I can, we were being taken for a ride by this person. So that's the first thing, says the apostle. You've got the people in the church. How are you going to work out what to do? Then he says, step two, you've got a church role, verse nine, a list, a list of people who need support. This is not a list of people who are workers. This is a list of people who need support. Now, how are you going to make sure the right people get the right support? How will you avoid neglecting people and doing foolish handouts? Both of them could endanger the gospel reputation of the church. You can imagine that, can't you? A church in the middle of the village and um, they're neglecting the people who they should be looking after. And so people say, where's the love in that church? Where's the truth? Where's the God? Or they're passing around the message, all you have to do is turn up and the church is so dopey, it'll hand over everything it has. And so the reputation of the church is destroyed in two directions. 
Now, of course, widows should be supported. Let me not give the impression that because it's the presenting issue, it's not a big issue. The Old Testament and the New Testament both tell us that we should be looking after the widow. But we need to see whether the family should be doing it first. Verse 4, and uh, Paul beautifully says, if the widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice, one, by caring for their own family and repaying their parents, two, for this is pleasing to God, three. If there is no family, verse five, the question is, is she a Christian? This doesn't mean that Paul is saying you wouldn't care for a non-Christian, but what he's saying is you've got to watch the application process to work out whether you've got genuine people coming to you or not. And the third thing he says, suggests is that 60 is a benchmark. In Paul's day, 60 was quite old. In our day, of course, 60, you're just a spring chicken, just a kid, just a baby. But in Paul's day, 60 was quite says he, peering through his glasses. Um, 60 was quite old in Paul's day. So there's step two. You've got a role who goes on it. Step three, you mustn't create trouble for people who could join the list and find their life chained to the church. Okay, I'm going to read 11 to 15 because it sounds terrible and patronizing, but it's not. As for younger widows, don't put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, to give enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. And as you read this, you think to yourself, this is a very, very politically incorrect old man talking. You know, he just, he needs, he needs lessons from us in how to think carefully. But what Paul means is we mustn't be giving a handout, says he to Timothy, to the person which will tie them down to the church. So they're now on the list. Okay. They've agreed not to work and not to marry. They depend on the church. And you've frustrated this younger widow because you've said to her, no, 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 you can't work and you can't get married. So massive time on her hands, recipe for possible trouble, and she's able to get married. She has an opportunity to remarry. No, says the church, you're on our list. Ridiculous. So he's thinking of the good of the younger widow. He's not being critical of her. He's trying to present some dangers. And when you consider how Paul just steers through this in about 10 verses, it's absolutely brilliant. Because the real issue, again, I want to say is not widows. Although caring for widows and widowers is a big need in the church. And when somebody loses their partner in the church, they are very, very vulnerable to a whole lot of new sadnesses no longer turning up with their spouse, no longer sitting with their spouse, no longer going to the home group with their spouse, no longer being invited out with their spouse. All of these things change. And so this is an opportunity for the church to obviously look after where there needs to be, but also to be extremely sensitive and caring. But look at verse 7. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. And look at verse 14. 
give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Verse 15, some have already turned away to follow Satan. This is the big issue behind the issue. Paul is not just concerned for the widow who he is concerned for. He's concerned for the blame and the devil's work and the turning away from the faith and the absolute opposite of God's desire for people to be saved. You see, it's as you stare at the chapter, you think something must be going on to bring into a letter of pastoral leadership a long section on widows. And the answer is, there's a section on widows as an illustration of dealing with a pastoral crisis in the light of eternity. Do you see what I'm saying? It's still God our Saviour. Chapter 2, verse 3, wanting people to be saved. So don't fall into the trap if you're preaching through 1 Timothy 5 of just staying with the widow issue because bigger and behind it is this huge eternal issue. And Paul is saying in these verses that he doesn't want blame to spread, he doesn't want slander to grow, he doesn't want Satan to destroy because God desires people to be saved. And a pastoral crisis, which turns up often, can be a great opportunity for the devil to do a huge amount of damage, loss of confidence in the church, loss of influence by the church, dishonour to God. So 1 Timothy 5, you see, is an echo of Acts 6. You remember in Acts 6 where the uh, Jewish widows were being treated better than the Gentile widows and you've got this absolute recipe for disaster. This is the sort of thing a current affair would have just done a series on. You know, it's got race, it's got sex, it's got poverty, it's got uh, religion all thrown into the mix. And the apostles quickly say, we're not going to desert the work of praying and preaching. They don't say we're above waiting on tables. They say we're not going to lose the key jobs of praying and preaching. And they quickly organize so that everything is done well. And then it says, and basically the gospel took off. So getting into a pastoral crisis with your leadership team for the gospel that's the big picture. That's the, that's the big perspective is the key to what this is all about. I think um, I'll, I will keep going and go to now 5.17. This is what I've called pastoral protection. And I'll read these great verses for us. The elders, verse 17, who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, incredible, to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead. The sins of others trail behind. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. When I uh, gave these talks originally in 1 Timothy at the CMS Summer School in Katoomba, <clears throat> and one of the reasons that I'm doing them here is because Jack so kindly asked me, probably back in 2020, 
And I said, I've just finished some talks in 1 Timothy. Would that be appropriate for a pastoral conference? Obviously it would. It's now two years down the track. And so 1 Timothy has floated out of my brain, but has come back into my brain for this conference, which has been great for me. But um, I told the Katoomba conference that when I reached 15 years at North Sydney, um, one of the elders got up in the church and said, it's 15 years since Simon and Kathy came, and uh, we've got a little something for them down in the hall. And as I was shaking hands at the door of the church at the end, this lady from Vancouver came out. She said, boy, I hope, I hope they do for you what they did for my pastor, which happened to be my brother-in-law in Vancouver. And they said um, he'd been with us for 10 years, so we gave them both uh, a ticket to Paris for a holiday and a movie camera to take photos. And I thought as I walked down to the hall, 10 years, two tickets to Paris, one movie camera. I've been here 15 years. This will be two world tickets and uh, two movie cameras. You know, I'm so looking forward to this. When I got down to the hall, these two um, elders said, it's really great that we've had you for 15 years and we've got a little present for you. And they brought me a gardenia in a black plastic bucket from Bunnings and gave it to me. <clears throat> I was so depressed. I'm still depressed. <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> I want you to know that I've got, I nearly got over this. Um, <clears throat> and I went home and I rang my brother-in-law and I said to him, I've just bumped into one of your people and she said that you got two tickets to Paris and a movie camera for being there 10 years and I've been here 15 years and I've just been given a gardenia in a black plastic bucket. And he said, did you get to keep the black plastic bucket? And I said, yes. And he put the phone down. <clears throat> it didn't comfort me at all. Um, <clears throat> why am I telling you this? Because not everybody does thanks very well. And uh, maybe we have to look forward to it in the future and not the present. But I think in this country especially, we don't do thanks very well. Watching the way um, Jack and Jeannie have been thanked, especially being you being married to a murderer, I mean, it's an incredible thing. <laughs> it's incredible that you would both be so happy together and peaceful and peaceful. I mean, you must... Um, <clears throat> the, watching the way you two have been thanked and loved is a great great sign. So here is the Apostle Paul talking in the way in which we look after the elders of the church. And um, the elders literally, verse 17, are the people, this is the original language, who stand before, who stand before well. What an interesting phrase. And says the Apostle, these people should be honoured. I presume the ones who don't stand before well or don't serve well or don't lead well should not be honoured, but faithful elders should be honoured. And he especially says, verse 17, those who do the preaching and the teaching, which feeds and nurtures the church. As you know, some, like the Presbyterians, see two types of elder here, the ruling and the teaching. Some see one elder here, the ruling by teaching. But the important thing is to appreciate the good gift of good leaders. That's what Paul is saying. Now, how do we do this? It looks as though he is talking about finance, not extravagance, but sufficient, because the scriptures that are used in 519 have to do with providing needs. So chapter 5, 3 to 16, providing for the widows. Chapter 5, 17, providing for your pastors. And it is the privilege of the pastor to be set aside for the work of the word. I mean, my old boss used to say, we're like Moses' mother. 
You know, we're being asked to do what we want to do. You remember how Moses' mother was asked to raise her baby? And we pastors are being asked to do what we want to do, which is spend time in the Word and teach it. It is a great privilege. But um, it's the privilege of the congregation to set aside a little of their funds, and often the congregation, especially in some of the places I've worked, have had plenty of funds, and to set aside some of their funds to enable the pastor to survive. I think the Anglican churches do this well, and uh, certainly CMS did it well, and this Recharge Conference has been extremely generous to me. The two quotes in 518 both have to do with what looks like providing for the needs of life. Deuteronomy 25, feeding the ox. And you notice the second quote is from Luke 10, which shows us that the corpus of Scripture, by the time 1 Timothy was written, was already bigger than the Old Testament. Did that make sense? Well, now in 519 to 25, he deals with elders who are unfairly attacked and elders who should be rightly stood down. Very sobering verses. In 519, the elder who's attacked should have two or three witnesses bring the charge because one person can bring an elder down. And all you need today is one person to bring a charge against an elder. He touched me. It's just a terrible, terrible fire that gets started. And so the apostle says, ideally, there should be two or three witnesses. Nobody, says Calvin, is so exposed as a pastor. Endless complaints can be leveled. So therefore, says Paul, investigate thoroughly. Verse 20, when the sin is proven, the fellowship should be told. It's a very sad situation for the pastor, his family, the church, and the wider witnesses. And you see the warning in 521 from Paul, it's to be done fairly. So it's a very difficult thing, isn't it, when somebody wants to take you on, but they dislike you, or they are jealous, or they are angry, or they are vengeful. So if it's to be done, it should be done fairly. Just as a little aside, I've always been thankful for the example of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. You remember how difficult the Corinthians were for Paul? I mean, of all his problems in Corinth, the, the biggest one gets 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6, four chapters of trouble with the Corinthians who've begun to despise him. And he says in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, I speak... Uh, openly to you, Corinthians, I have widened my heart. I appeal to you, do the same. And uh, I learned from an older pastor that if you've got to go and have a difficult conversation with somebody, privately widen your heart before you go. In other words, you've got to pray that the Lord helps you to love the person you're going to speak to in such a way that they know that you love them. And as I said before, and you'll get to the end of the conversation and they'll say, it was obvious that he loved me. And because I'm so sinful, there have been times in the ministry where I've got to go and talk to somebody and I really dislike them. They're really difficult. 
and I almost have to stick on their face, the face of somebody who I do like, and talk to them as if they are somebody who I love, and ask the Lord's huge help to help me to do this. But um, you can see that the Apostle Paul sets a wonderful example in speaking with a big heart to people who are difficult. And if you're dealing with somebody who's uh, you've got a difficult conversation to have, it's important to go with a big heart. So that's why he says in verse uh, 22, go slowly in the appointments. We've already talked about this in chapter 3. And verse 23, drink a little wine, <laughs> is um, basically, I'm absolutely sure he's saying this is stressful. I'm absolutely sure this verse fits right into the context of this is going to get you in the guts. You're going to lose sleep over this. You're going to have stomach troubles over this. This is going to get you in the guts, the work. Because the whole issue of dealing with the person who's unfairly attacked and the person who must be disciplined is such a stressful thing. One commentator says, the very nature of the down-to-earth teaching in 523 makes it obviously a genuine text. Then in verses 24, 25, remember the iceberg principle, says Paul, the surface can be very misleading. Uh, and in all of this, the context is that God wants people to be saved. He wants the church to be loved and taught. And he wants the gospel to go out where the uh, wheels are oiled well. Um, Bob Yarborough in his pillar commentary, you know the pillar commentaries, wonderful commentaries, I think, and his commentary on the pastoral epistles, he says this, not everybody will understand this sentence, but I'll give it to you anyway. He says, ministry proceeds under many auspices, but one that is indispensable is eschatology. God will exonerate and he will reward. In other words, we keep going with the long view in mind. We know that God is for us in this. We know that he has the wisdom that we need. We know that he has the love to give us and the power to overrule things. And so you see in chapter five, when it comes to relationships, be careful. When it comes to pastoral issues, be wise. When it comes to pastoral leadership, tread carefully. Go prayerfully, go carefully. That's chapter five. Now we're going to run through chapter six even more briefly. And chapter six raises a lot of issues about money. Paul, in a way, moves out of the church in chapter 6, into the world. It's the believer living in the world Monday to Friday. And uh, the world that we live in, of course, is desperately needy, desperately confused, desperately blind, and desperately deceitful. Um, I'll tell you a story that I wasn't planning to tell you, but uh, my uh, pastor in the UK, Dick Lucas, uh, was an amazing man, is an amazing man, a very humble man. I once stood next to him at uh, church after he'd preached and a lady came out and she said to him, you're the most arrogant man I've ever listened to. And he said, I'm much worse than you think I am and shook her hand. <laughs> I thought it was such a fantastic thing to say. But uh, on one particular occasion, um, I'd been to a cocktail party in the UK and I'm just straight off Bondi Beach. I know nothing about the UK and I went to this cocktail party and this very huge man who was the host, he got me in the corner and I'm standing there with my little glass of orange juice and he's poking me in the chest and he's saying to me, son, Christian life is basically this, you do your best. Do you understand that, son? You do your best. And he's the host and he's old and I'm young and I don't know what to say. And I went back to the office annoyed about this 
And Dick was there, and I said to him, what do you do in these contexts? And he said, interesting you should raise this, he said, because I've just spoken at Harrow School, which uh, Eton is the top school, Harrow is the number two school. And he said, I spoke to the whole assembly of the boys and all the staff and all the common room. Everybody was there, and the Lord seemed to greatly bless the talk. And I went back to the common room, and the Master of Science came over to me with his cup of tea, and he said to me, Mr. Lucas, that was a fine talk. He said, and I think it's very good for the boys. I think boys need religion. He said, of course, I can't believe any of this stuff because I'm a scientist, but I think it's good for the boys. <laughs> so Dick said, I took one step forward, and I said to him, no, the reason you don't believe is because you're blind. And the reason you're bl blind is because you're a very proud and sinful man. And until you repent of your sins, you'll never be able to see or believe. It's a great piece of conversation, don't you think? <laughs> <clears throat> it's the opposite of the stereotypical English clergyman on television who will say something like, well, a God believes in you, <laughs> or something weedy and wet like that. But here's a guy stepping forward to say something utterly courageous. And um, this particular world that we live in, we will occasionally need to say something straight and not just something weedy. And this world that we're in is being described in chapter 6. Uh, once again, the presenting issue is money. But if you peel back from the chapter, you'll see that the real issue is Paul is asking, where is your heart? Where is your holy grail? What are you passionate about? What are you pinning your soul to? And there are so many people who are in our world who are pinning their soul to a cloud, to a, to a, a breath, the false teachers in chapter 1, we get the impression, are not just gripped by the law for its own sake, but are actually gripped by what they can do in the present and sometimes even get money. Paul is gripped by eternal life. He's gripped by the glory of God, and that's the contrast in this chapter. So he does want people in this world to be saved from the world. We know that from chapter 2. We know that leaders have to look beyond the world. We know that from chapter 3. We know that godliness is not just for this world, but the world to come. We know that from chapter 4. And we know that even the pastoral crises are to keep the eternal in mind. And as we come to chapter 6, it is climactic. It's where is your kingdom? That's the climax of the letter. Please don't think that chapter 6 is a dull add-on. We're actually peeling back, we're actually being shown, we're actually being revealed, or it is being revealed to us, which kingdom people belong to. And the false teachers, sadly, are really people of this world. And that's why the money issue comes up so strongly. We mustn't read 1 Timothy 6 like it's in encyclopedia. If I could appeal to you, brothers, and I'm appealing to myself as well, don't go through your Bible and just say, well, now we've got in this letter to another topic, so I will talk on another topic. Ask yourself the question, if this is a letter, why has the topic come up? Not just what does it say, but why has it come up? That's the key. These letters are not dictionaries. Their letters. So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, he says this. First of all, he calls on um, servants to honor their masters. And we see in these verses 
that uh, there were slaves, obviously, who were believers. The church was for all people, all classes, and the lowliest people have a sphere of influence. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. See again, those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them. Of course, if you've got an unbelieving master, you've got a mission field on your doorstep. <clears throat> so the weakest person in the church has a sphere of influence in the world. Every week I receive one or two con uh, phone calls <clears throat> from a friend called Bronson Blessington, who went into prison at the age of 14, and, <clears throat> and he turns 50 next year. So what is that, 34 years behind bars and 34 years, um, 32 years of active ministry behind bars, reaching people that we would never reach. And he rings me once or twice a week and he just encourages me, he never asks for anything. Um, he knows his Bible backwards and forwards and inside out. And uh, it doesn't matter what verse I give him, he'll finish the verse before I'm finished reading it to him. Uh, and he's a most remarkable man. Uh, one occasion when I was visiting him, one of the prisons I was leaving, and there was an African lady behind me or in front of me, and I said to her, have you been visiting your son? And she said, yes. Um, and uh, she said, who have you been visiting? I said, I've been visiting Bronson. And she said, oh, we call him Paul. Because in come our Timothys, and he takes them under his wing, and he either leads them to the Lord or he keeps them going. So he has this wonderful ministry. But there is a man you know, who lives in a tiny little cell and he's got very great limitations and a very great ministry and a very great influence exactly where he is. And the Apostle Paul begins chapter 6 by saying, it doesn't matter how powerless you are, if you're in the world, you've got a role to play. So don't lose perspective because things are much bigger and better than we may think. Then says Paul, getting onto the subject of money in chapter 6, verse 3, he raises temptation number one, which is to be greedy. And obviously it is temptation number one. And he exposes the false teachers. He says, these are the things you're to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord, conceited and understands nothing. An unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels that result in envy, strife, malicious talk and constant friction. But, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So you see he's, re he's reading behind the false teachers an interest which is not just intellectual. It's moral and it's financial. And uh, these false teachers are therefore being exposed. Now maybe the false teachers wanted to make money or perhaps they were teaching that getting money is the true religion. In other words, the good life is what Australians would call the good life. What could be better than to have everything? The Apostle Paul says there is something better than having everything, and that is having contentment and godliness. This is the definition of true riches. And it is a very wonderful thing, isn't it, to be set free from the huge, huge passion to accumulate and have everything and do everything. Show me the person who's content and godly, and I'll show you a person who's got inward riches that no outward riches could ever match. Luther said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I've placed in the Lord's hands, I still possess. That's a position of liberty, isn't it? And contentment.
And as you know, in our country, we've never had so much and people have never been so anxious, never been lacking contentment and godliness so much as today, and never had so much stuff. So Paul says, beware the bait on the hook, verse 10, which will kill you. Or the Anglican prayer that says, help us to pass so, so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. And the surprise the Apostle Paul has for the person who longs to be rich is that they should see what really matters because there are riches that are better than the riches the world thinks are riches. And that's why Timothy is told in verse 11 that he should flee certain sins, he should follow worthwhile things, and he should fight the good fight. We do have to flee certain sins, don't we? We all have, I would imagine, one or two sins which just dog us all the time. And um, <clears throat> I feel as though I walk around the Christian life like I'm walking around a swimming pool, and that is I'm always one step away from being profoundly disobedient. It's not as though my temptation is a long way away. It's always one step away from me. And therefore, to have the Lord's help in staying on the path is an absolutely vital thing. Flee, says the apostle. Follow the things which are beyond this world, the bigger and the better things, and fight the good fight because you've been set free. In verse 17, he raises temptation number two, which is to be proud. This is the person who has plenty and is very successful and is in danger of being proud and independent. This is us, dear friends. We're in the top 1% of the world, maybe 2% of the world. And if we don't learn our dependence on the Lord, if we actually think that our MasterCard, our Visa card, our private health insurance, our security system, if we actually think all these things are all we need, the Lord will teach us dependence. He'll find a way of teaching us dependence. So learn the easy way to be dependent on him. Don't wait until he teaches you the hard way. By the way, you know that lovely illustration of C.S. Lewis where he says that the Lord comes to the average person and knocks on their door and the average person says to him, I'm not interested. And so C.S. Lewis says, what will the Lord do if he loves the person? He won't knock on the door again because they're not listening to the door and he won't walk away because he loves the person. C.S. Lewis says he'll take out the back wall. <laughs> he'll just collapse the central staircase. Not because he doesn't love the person, because he does love the person and he wants to move in and turn the shack into a palace. And so sometimes the collapse of a life is actually the Lord's love for the life. And, of course, that happens for the unbeliever. Some will come to their senses, but also we ourselves will be brought back to our knees um, if we don't learn our dependence. And here's the surprise for the wealthy person, six, chapter 6, 18 to 19, use your wealth well. So Paul has a surprise, number one, for the greedy person, which is trace everything you have back to God. And the second surprise is for the proud person, which is use everything you have forward for the kingdom. And the final word in chapter 6, verse 20, says Paul to young Timothy, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter, the opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge. 
which some have professed, and in doing so have departed from the faith, and grace be with you. And the whole message of the Bible, isn't it, is that the grace of God comes down, and in true wisdom, the glory from us goes up. That's really the message of the Bible, and it's the message of our ministry. And a guy emailed me recently, and he said to me, I don't like this idea of God being praised. He said, anybody who needs to be praised is not worthy of praise. I thought about this for a second, and I thought, no, no, no. We, we want to credit the person who deserves to be credited. We approve of the honour given to the Anzac soldiers. We approve the thanks to the nurses and the doctors through the pandemic. We have a sense of justice, a sense of righteousness, that the, the right person should be credited. And if the right person is not credited, there's something wrong. Now, the most discredited person in the universe is God. The most non-credited person in the universe is God. There's about 1% of the population in the world giving him honour. And even when we give him our honour in praise and song, it's feeble, isn't it? It's an anthill of praise compared to the mountain that we'll give him one day when we see him face to face and sin is taken away. So the grace of God, dear brothers and sisters, it will keep coming down and it will keep funneling into you all that you need for life and service. I promise you, it's there in the scriptures. And our part is to lift up what glory we can to him and to help others to do the same. The church, of course, and if not the church, the lost, whom the Lord longs to save. Habas 10, I should finish, and um, I'll finish with prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have given to us these very wonderful words. And as we look at the presenting issues of care and of money, we see behind the scenes the great issues of eternity, that your name would properly be known, that your people would be truly saved, and that the kingdom would advance, and that people would have their hearts and their souls pinned to Christ. We thank you for the great work that he has done, taking us who have disqualified ourselves and qualifying us through his blood for the kingdom which will last. And we pray that in the midst of a very blind and confused and foolish world, that you would help us by your grace to live for you, to give you the glory more and more and to see others to do the same. Uh, please help us. Please enable us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.